Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Thinking Aloud about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. And today we'll be talking about the 1925 version of Stella Dallas. It's directed by Henry King, and it has a whole host of very interesting stars. Uh, Ronald Coleman, who's top build, and then Belle Bennett, uh, Lois Moran, and a very young Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Uh, but before we go on to discuss the film, Richard, why don't you tell us a little bit about the restoration project, how we've come to see it? Yeah, so this was the latest in the Film Foundation's screening room series of films. So we talked about Prisons of the Earth a few weeks ago. They're making a film available roughly once a month, only for three days, available for free streaming worldwide. This was one that was restored by MoMA uh, in New York, who plastered a big on-screen logo across the print for the whole film, which was a little annoying. There was a bit of background about how they did the restoration, and, and what's interesting is they were really ahead of the game in terms of adding film to their collection. So they actually started acquiring prints of silent films back in the 1930s. Mm. So the, this print that the restoration was based on was bought directly from Samuel Goldwyn in the 30s. They actually had a very good quality original release print in their collection so effectively the restoration process was largely just scanning the print they had uh, but obviously there's more to it than that but it does mean this this does look excellent it's a film that was in the public domain wasn't it uh, given the age i would think so yeah in the states so basically there has to be um a reason for restoring and preserving or some kind of financial imperative uh so i think you know the plastering the moment sign is maybe a way of kind of reminding people where it's coming from, mm. but also hopefully, cross your fingers, there'll be a future uh, Blu-ray release of, of some kind. I, I, I can see the reason for having the logo on, but maybe it doesn't need to be quite so big. <laughs> yeah. Just an, another interesting side note is that the person who ran the film division of MoMA in the 1930s uh, was Iris Barry, a very famous Birmingham-born British okay. film critic uh, one of the few women, you know, who uh, had a very high profile as a film critic in the 1920s. And then she went on to run uh, the Museum of Modern Arts film division. And she hired people like Luis Buñuel at important periods of his career where he found it very hard to get employment. So, you know, the reason why MoMA has a, this print is probably to a great extent due to her. There's one article I found about this mentioned, but at the point they acquired the print, you know, this was viewed as a, as a, in quotes, women's picture, and women's pictures were not taken seriously by critics at that point. Um, so, you know, probably something like, I don't know, greed or intolerance would be seen as an important film, but this, this wasn't. The Moving Picture World Internet Archive has an article by C.S. Oswell called Through the Box Office Window, where it says, what a picture, you know, Stella Dallas, Samuel Goldwyn's first release to United Artists is truly a masterpiece. We unqualifiedly believe it to be one of the finest pictures ever produced. Frankly, we doubt if it has ever been equaled and are sure that it has never been surpassed. And the tremendous sweep of its emotional appeal or the poignancy of its soul-stirring drama of mother love and sacrifice. That is a contemporaneous... Oh, oh yeah, but I, I'm sure it got very good reviews when it came out and it did very well commercially when it came out. But I'm talking about the way these films were viewed in the 30s or 40s. I know what you mean. Where your largely male film critics would be looking at sure. other, other types of film sure. as important. And so it's really great that these have been preserved. Yeah, absolutely. The experience of watching it 
in such a gorgeous print, it really is kind of, I don't know, mind-altering. If you've seen it before and if you've seen it in a crappy, I keep saying this, but it really is like watching a different film, a better film, yeah? It's so luscious to look at, the, you know, the skin tones, the image, the toning, the tinting. It looks glorious, yeah? Um, what did you think of it? I loved it. I thought, it, as you say, it looks amazing. The, yeah, this kind of pristine restoration looks looks great. The score was also really, really good. So that that, that was a, a score by um, composed by Stephen Horn and orchestrated by Ben Palmer, which was commissioned for this restoration and premiered at the Venice Film Festival um, last year, I think. Yes. And that really helped in terms in terms of you know just the overall feel of an experience of watching the film. I'm going to say something very controversial, but I'd like to discuss, which is that I still prefer the 1936 version with uh, Barbara Stanwyck by King Vidor. And I wonder what your thoughts are. I don't think I've seen the 1936 oh. version, so maybe okay. I'll, I'll have to watch that. Um, but there's also, of course, the 1990 version with Bette Midler, which is apparently terrible. I have seen that as well. And yeah. it, was, it was terrible. I mean, actually, I think Bette Midler is very good, but it's a very cheesy film. And it's also a film that was out of its time, yeah? Uh, and actually this thing about being out of its time, you know, because I think a lot of it has to do with perceptions of class and wanting to be upwardly mobile and seeing an upper-class culture as something to aspire to uncritically, yeah? That because it was upper-class, it was inherently better. That is something that is in all of the versions but actually, in the 1990s, you know, why is she sacrificing herself? So what, you know, yeah, like, yeah. who cares if she marries the society? She could marry some other rich guy who doesn't have those prejudices or, yeah, this idea of being in the right set and so on, I think really carries a different um, meaning. I mean, not to say that it doesn't exist or, yeah, that it didn't continue to exist, but it has a different social force, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, I think that's kind of a little bit of the key... I was thinking about this because, you know, I think Ronald Coleman is so wonderful in uh, the 1925 version. I forget who plays him in the 1936 version, but I always call him like the, the dullest actor in Christmas. Let me look at him. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just look that up. He's so uh, dull, you've forgotten his name. Yes. He is famously dull, though. John Bowles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, who is the most boring actor of the 1930s. And actually, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking that that may add to the quality of the 1937 film, yeah? Because Barbara Stanwyck is so alive emotionally and physically in the way she moves and in her gaudiness and in her relish and, and actually in her sense of herself, yeah? She's, she's happy in her skin, right? Yeah, because certainly in this one, the Stella is not is not happy and she's yeah you don't kind of aspire you kind of aspire to be Ronald Coleman not, yeah. not Stella I think in this one yeah he's elegant and at ease and at ease in his body and you know and kind and you know whereas there's something about just the dullness of John Bowles you know that makes the audience think oh they can keep their upper classness right <laughs> the dullness in the 1930-37 version acts almost as a critique mm -hmm. yeah of, of that world um, that said, I really loved the 1925 version. I found it very moving. I found Belle Bennett fantastic. It's the first thing I've ever seen her in. She's 
second build to Ronald Coleman. I've never even read of her as a big star of the period. She wasn't basically. I, so this from there's some interesting background on the on the website by Gina Telleroli. So Bell Bell Bennett was a, she she worked on stage. I don't think she'd done films before, um, and but she was spotted by Henry King and, and Sam Goldwyn as someone who would be ideal for this, and and it, yeah she she actually put on weight for the role and so and, and was willing to look unattractive. I think many stars would not have been willing to. You 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 can always tell when it's a kind of you know very glamorous star who's trying to look unattractive without looking unattractive and she, and she really goes for it in terms of being unattractive the the other thing about her which is amazing is her given what happens in the film she had two children and one was a 17 year old son who died a month before the film started shooting my god uh, which you know given what she does in the film is 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 quite amazing yes i loved her i thought she was amazing she looked like a kind of you know a very sensuous more natural kind of may west one of the things that made me uneasy about this 1925 version was its representation of working class people. Yeah, like it really looks down on them. The, all, of the, all of the beginning with uh, Stella and her brothers and the father picking his feet in the stove, I thought that was like disgusting. It is a view of poor people as pigs, basically. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. You know, one step up above a hovel. And so the sense that by inherently, by virtue of being poor, you know, they're inherently dirty and they're also sexualized. So you have like the young brothers that show naked, mm. right? From the back, but naked. Yeah, there is like a kind of a real set of attitudes. Yeah, yeah. That was a bit, that's, that whole sequence was, was a bit odd. Should we, should we talk quickly about the plot just to, to yes. set the context? Because we haven't really. Stephen Dallas is this rich guy, his father is exposed an embezzler and kills himself, so he exiles himself away from his girlfriend to a mill town where he's seen by Stella Dallas, who's this working class girl from a poor background, who sets her sights on him in order to improve herself, uh, entraps him, I guess, into a date. They get married and have a kid who then is one year old. And that's the first five minutes of the film, which is incredible. It just kind of moves so quickly. Because up to that point, that, that sequence, Stephen is the main character, but basically the rest of the film focuses on Stella. She's basically trying to improve herself, but failing at every juncture. Stephen gets a job in New York. He thinks unfairly, but you can see why he thinks it, that she's having an affair. So he leaves her there with the daughter, goes to New York. The daughter grows up. Everyone still is very suspicious of Stella. No one believes her. You know, they think she's common. They think she's having affairs and so on. So basically she's isolated from everyone else. Ultimately, she has to decide between, you know, her love for her daughter and should she allow her daughter to live with the father and his new wife and, and or should she keep hold of her herself? Then, yeah, it's all really tragic. <laughs> well, it's a story of mother love where the mother's love for her daughter is so great that she's willing to have the daughter hate her if it means the daughter having a better life. Yeah. And actually, the narrative all works around who knows what. So part of the reason why we find it so moving is we know the daughter really loves the mother. Yeah. But we also know that the mother loves the daughter even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to the extent that she's willing to have the daughter hate her in order that the daughter's life or future 
be easier, yeah, in order to pave the way for an easier future for design. Yeah, yeah. But but as you say, the message of this is, you know, working class people know your place. You know, don't try and improve yourself because everyone will know who you really are. You're right. The way certainly the way her family is presented. I mean, you you only see them in that one scene, but the way they're presented is very is kind of sneery. The way she's observed by the film and her her male working class friend is quite sneery by the end she becomes this tragic figure but certainly for the first half of the film you know there's all these references to her trying to trap Stephen Dallas and this kind of thing not that she's in love but that she's trying to trap him though you know the film always tells you that she does the right thing that she's virtuous but you never see any of the love for the father that is so clearly expressed in relation to the daughter um, so, nonetheless, I found it like a really beautiful film, kind of, and really moving. But I found that the 1937 King Vido version is really great in a way that this one isn't. Quite. Okay. Silent London points out that the the King Vido version is uses or is based on the Henry King script or the script for the Henry King film rather sure. than being based on the original novel. So it's actually a the direct remake of the film rather than a new version of the book. So. But it has what, you know, the 1937 version has what for me is one of the great shots and one of the great endings in all of the history of cinema. And watching this 1925 version, I was looking for it. I was looking to see what they do with it. And that's the scene where the mother watches the daughter get married through the window. Yeah, the police are shushing her away. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, that ends with the mother just leaving, right? In the 1937 version, you get this glorious long take, right? Where, you know, the police are shushing her. She says, no, please, let me one more minute. You know, and she's crying and she bites her handkerchief with the tears <laughs> yeah, of joy, right? Yeah. Uh, and then the camera follows her, yeah, and it ends in this enormous close-up of Barbara Stanwyck smiling like you know it's her life's mission her life's work has been done her life is not complete <laughs> yeah her daughter's married well right yeah you yeah. know and that just that last look on Stanwyck's face is absolutely like fantastic right yeah you know? yeah uh and and you know the film is full of of shots and sequences like that the scene in the vacation place yeah where they go on vacation where you know the mother is kind of walking through, and the, 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 the her daughter's friends see her. They're both good, but Stanwood just takes it to another level. Yeah, she's got things dangling from all of her. You know, she's kind of being <laughs> nice to everybody, completely unaware. It's very funny, and also you're seeing her both through her own eyes and through other people's eyes, right? So it's both very funny, but also kind of so touching. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's a comparative stance. And I suppose it can seem like a critique of the 1925 version. And in a way, I, w I would rather it not be because the 1925 version was so wonderful and it's such a wonderful experience to see it. Yeah. Uh, but I would also urge those who have seen the 1925 version, go have a look at the 1937 version. It's even better. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to add? One thing I was going to say, which I... I found quite odd there's as usual there's lots of background material on the film foundation website and there's a there's an introduction by a film critic there's an interview with the guy from moment that did the restoration 
there's a page of links to articles about Henry King and information about the film and so on and so on. There's no mention at all of Stephen Horne and Ben Palmer who were responsible for this amazing score. Um. Like, no mention at all. And it just felt that just felt very odd because uh, they talk on the on the, the the video introductions about you know the importance of seeing these films in a good situation in our in an ideal world seeing them in a cinema if you saw this film in a cinema without any score or with a bad score it would be you know without any score it would be nothing with a bad score it wouldn't be great you know with this score it was amazing and so it just felt quite odd not to mention that particularly given yeah. that that score was commissioned for this restoration yeah. it is credited at the end of the print but it's just not yeah. mentioned on the website it would be interesting to have seen an interview with Stephen, perhaps about what the sure. the processes of scoring this kind of film because he he's he's scored it several times. He's apparently done live accompaniments. He did a composed score for Hipfest a few years ago, um, and then this is this is I think an entirely new score for an orchestra. You've now missed your chance to see this. Hopefully there'll be a, another way of seeing it at some point. The the film is on YouTube, but in a really crap copy with a very bad score. So um, I think one of the things that we'll do from now on when we do these screenings is we will announce them in advance on our Facebook page. So any of you listening who'd like to join us for the next uh, of these screenings will know what time they're playing. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We are thinking aloud about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. Uh, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.